Hello! Hi, Craig! Such an honor. Oh no, the honor's on me. I've been so excited to do this live with me you. Me too! And when I did start promoting that we were going on a live, we were flooded with questions. I think it's just a specialty oh, that a lot of people have so many questions about. So Dr. Yeah. Ord, if you could first please introduce yourself to everyone. Yeah, yeah, awesome. So my name is Ira Ort. I'm a facial cosmetic surgeon practicing in Bellevue, Washington, which is another city that's nearby Seattle. So I think a lot of people know Seattle, maybe not so much Bellevue, but yeah, I am practicing as a solo practitioner and doing mostly cosmetic facial surgeries. I do do some reconstructive work as well. Such diverse work that you do, Doc. And a lot of Thank people you. who watch this are students. So can you tell us your education journey, which I know is a very long one that led you here yeah. to this point now? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So my education is long. I have sort of a non-traditional, I guess, route to where I ended up now. I started out with a dental degree, DDS, at the Ohio State University, the Ohio State <laughs> University. And then got my medical doctor degree, MD, at Case Western Reserve University in Cleveland, Ohio. And I did my residency at the University Hospitals Cleveland Medical Center, which is an affiliate hospital system with Case. Then I did a brief fellowship, like a half-year fellowship, in University of Florida, Jacksonville, doing craniofacial surgery. And then I did another year of fellowship in cosmetic surgery, working just strictly the face and learning some liposuction and other mm -hmm. things. So I stopped counting, I guess, <laughs> how many years, but, <laughs> but yeah, that's how I ended up here. Wow. I just can't imagine you being in a certain point in, the, in that time when you were in dental school and when you're in medical school. I wonder if you were thinking, when is this going to be over? I was very curious, what's your inspiration from going into the healthcare field? Whether it was dental surgery first and then medical school afterwards, was there any family or friends or any personal experiences that led you into medicine? Yeah, so I don't have any family members in medicine, mm -hmm. but I had a personal experience where I volunteered at a clinic shadowing uh, maxillofacial surgeon and the one event that really triggered me to really make that step into applying is watching an orthognathic surgery and what an orthognathic surgery is for those of you who are watching who are not familiar with what that is is essentially a jaw surgery if a person has a huge discrepancy in their bite like a big overbite mm -hmm. or underbite mm -hmm. or their maxilla the top jaw and the mandible the bottom jaw are not aligning well and that could really impact their function as well as the form of their face and their profile so orthognathic surgery is to correct those jaw alignments to be more in harmony so i saw that surgery and i just fell in love with what an impactful difference it made just immediately in in the person's function Mm -hmm. and the outlook, self-confidence, mm -hmm. outlook about themselves and mm -hmm. about others and just mm -hmm. 
Yeah, so that's probably the a single experience that really inspired me to go into healthcare. In order to, you know, really do that surgery, I, I was researching and I was like, where do I start to get to be that surgeon who does that? Mm -hmm. I don't know about Europe or elsewhere, but in the US, the field of dentistry and oral maxillofacial surgeons are the experts mm -hmm. in the orthognathic surgery. So you have to go through that training to really be one of the experts in that. Mm -hmm. So then I applied to dental school first. So I kind of knew from the very beginning where I wanted to be ultimately. So yeah. Wow. I'm so curious and very inspired at the same time of where you got the inspiration that, wow, this is a long road, but I will, I will bite it. And I guess <laughs> that experience was so impactful for you that here you are now, years later. Right? Yeah. I think once I started school, it, it was never like, oh my gosh, when am I going to be done? I don't think there was one point in life I in my education where I was really thinking about being done. I was very excited every single step of the way. And I mean, there were hard times mm -hmm. and, you know, good days and bad mm -hmm. days. But if I have to go back, I think I'd do it all over again. Wow, wow. Yeah. And that leads on to my question, actually. And you basically answered is, is this Despite how long and arduous this road, dentistry and then medicine, where you are now, now that you are practicing for years now and helping people change lives, do you have any regrets at all throughout all of this? Uh, regrets about my education or? Yeah, or like all the parties you missed, all the hangouts you can oh. go to, all the studying <laughs> that you have done. Is it yeah. worth it at the end? Yeah, yeah, it, it was worth it. Yeah, I mean, I, I do have regrets in certain aspects of my life. I think in any successful career, or if you talk to somebody who is really passionate and dedicated about something, they have to make some sacrifices in other areas. For me, yeah, I, I miss some social life and also having a little child. Mm -hmm. I always have this like mom guilt mm -hmm. of not doing more yeah. for my child. Yeah. yeah, so there's some regret in that regard, but I, I just try my best. Yeah, and you're doing yeah. great, Doug. And that, yeah, being said, that being said, what is the number one tip you would have for a student who wants to reach the point where you are, whether it's dentistry or medicine or specifically maxillofacial surgery? Work hard. And mm -hmm. I know that's like a very, very general statement. But what I mean by work hard is don't ever think that you know enough. Mm -hmm. Always be present to be wanting to learn more and the last person to leave. And just showing that effort in everything that you do, I think will get you far. And because the higher we go in our professional setting, it's more about who you know and mm -hmm. The connections that you make yeah. than your test score, yeah. right? Test yeah. score is good in the undergrad and yeah. you know the entrance exam. Yeah. But the higher you go, you have to show your good work ethic, mm -hmm. attitude, and then you make good connections mm -hmm. from your mentors, and that's how you really get go far. So that's one advice I have. And like yeah. you said, you already had this in mind that you want to do that maxillofacial surgery. And can you tell us what is the road? After 
Proctor Medical School. What's the, is there a specific specialty for those who don't know and how long is the residency and the fellowships afterwards? I think there are different pathways. Mm -hmm. So for me, the residency was in oral maxillofacial surgery and medical school was part of that in the beginning part mm -hmm. of that residency. And then I just went straight into residency. So there was not a high stress of mm -hmm. matching or, you know, reapplying and everything. It was just part of that track that I was in. And then after that, people are given choices to either go into practice or they can do further training. Some of the subspecialty trainings in my field is they can choose to go into head and neck surgery, mm -hmm. uh, whether it's oncology, you know, ablative or reconstructive head and neck work. They can go and do cosmetic surgery. They can go into craniofacial surgery and they can specialize also in TMJ reconstructions. And then I think there's also like extensive facial trauma. If you want to focus more in trauma, you can go into that. Got it. And can you tell people what you specialize in in your clinic? Yeah. So I specifically specialize in cosmetic and reconstructive surgeries of the face. I'd say my practice is 90% cosmetic and 10% reconstructive. And cosmetic surgeries can involve anywhere from eyelid surgery, eyelid rejuvenation, rhinoplasties, which can be both cosmetic and functional. And then face and neck lifts, brow lift, forehead lift, forehead contouring as part of facial feminization surgery mm -hmm. and jawline surgery. So the jaw surgeries can involve the functional correction, the orthognathic surgery, as I mentioned earlier, Earlier, as well as the external contouring. So if somebody has a very square bony jaw, mm -hmm. I can change the shape of that by contouring the bone. And genioplasty is another big part of my practice. And, you know, of course, fillers and Botox. Well, very extensive. And it's just so fulfilling to hear that you reached the point, really, that surgery that made an impact on you, that made you go into medicine, and finally you're doing it yourself. That is amazing. That is yeah. So inspiring. And Doc, you have mentioned that most of your procedures or surgeries are cosmetic and the 10% is reconstructive. And this leads us on to, I would say, the controversial aspect of our talk tonight. Yeah. So when I started promoting our live, a big chunk of the questions were so-called the ethics of cosmetic surgery, of plastic surgery. A big question that people were asking that I also asked myself too is when it comes to cosmetic surgery, is there a line of delineation between vanity and medicine? Do you think it threatens the idea of self-love knowing that in your tags you say true beauty is there a gray area within these two lines or no yeah yeah there there is a gray line so if i can just rephrase your question so are you asking is plastic surgery cosmetic surgery considered all vain yeah i think that's what a lot of people wanted to know too is is cosmetics just pure vanity yeah i okay i get that question no no i i don't think so i mean there is a fundamental difference in the definition of cosmetic surgery 
and plastic surgery. So plastic surgery would be more like reconstructive change. So it would be correcting the form and function of something, whereas cosmetic surgery is improving the form. Mm -hmm. So in that sense, you know, how much improvement can we consider necessary? And, mm -hmm. you know, how much of it is there vain? And that is a gray area, you know, improvement in form, comes in a variety of ways, whether it's doing a minor tweak or doing a major surgery, it's different for everybody. And I don't think it's in anybody's position to label somebody or somebody else's situation for doing something because everybody's story is different. Everybody's reason for doing what they're doing is different. And I try to really understand that aspect when I do consultations with people because vanity is so subjective i feel like somebody else can call it vain but yeah. you know that person who's actually doing it may have been bothered so mm -hmm. long by something like mm -hmm. their insecurity about their nose or their double chin or they were teased at school so in somebody else's eyes wanting to fix that may look like a vain activity but yeah. to that person it could mean so much in this society where i feel like so much of what we think and how we view ourselves is impacted by the external aspect from the media and from family media too, yeah yeah you know i i think there's a point where you know, you could say you're just doing way, way too much, really, you know, there, there is such thing as body dysmorphia, and, and that is a real condition. But aside from that, that's a whole different topic, I think. Yeah. But it just talking in terms of, you know, is cosmetic surgery vain? Mm -hmm. I don't think so. It's mainly just how the person views it. At, and if it can change, if you're going to feel better about yourself by making that change, mm -hmm. I don't see anything wrong with wanting to do cosmetic surgery mm -hmm. and if by doing so then you're going to gain more self-confidence mm -hmm. and you're going to feel better about yourself and that will project onto others too you're going to be a more positive and more confident person to yeah. be able to perform your work well perform your job well and treat others well so i think everything's sort of relative in that aspect that was amazing. And I'm smiling so much because, you know, this is why I actually love doing these lives is trying to break down things that either misinformed or out of stigma. And we talked about this before, Doc, that there's so much stigma about people who want to or do get cosmetic or even plastic surgeries done. And it really goes back to the point that, yes, beauty is in the eye of the beholder, but there's so much more than what meets the eye, right? Um, like you said, someone probably was bullied in school. There is a whole psychosocial aspect of mm -hmm. your field, right? That most people don't know about or chooses not to see, right? And I actually want to delve more into that. What are those specific procedures do you think that really is rooted in the whole psyche of a person? You talked about like facial feminization, right? And other reconstructive surgeries. Can you give us examples of those procedures where you feel, I would say, the most fulfilled? Yeah, those fulfilling surgeries in terms of the outlook, the cosmesis, as well as psychosocial aspect would be facial feminization. And that can include... A wide array of mm -hmm. procedures it mm -hmm. could 
do a frontal bone recontouring, brow bone shaving, and that's one, and then rhinoplasty and jawline surgery. So because my trans patients are going through transition and they view themselves in a certain identity and when the society, you know, puts a label or restriction on on in certain things, then you know, I think it, that can be really damaging to somebody even though you know they're going through the the hormonal treatments and other medical treatments there's limitations as to how much those hormones can and change somebody's appearance for instance you know male to female face transition mm -hmm you know, their voice might get softer and then, you know, might not have as much hair, but then the facial skeleton will not necessarily change. So that's where I really find things fulfilling to help those patients to achieve a more feminine look, the feminine face that they are desiring. So that's one of the most gratifying surgeries. And then other things would be rhinoplasty that really helps somebody to feel more confident mm -hmm. about their whole face. And also if there's functional mm -hmm. aspect involved in it, that really improves the quality of someone's life. Yeah, because I think also people tend to forget that there's conditions or whatnot that other people are born into or happens to them that changes the function, right? Like someone is in a motor vehicle accident or people with sleep apnea, which I read your paper about it. Mm -hmm. So yeah, like you said, Doc, great and amazing work that you do for these people. And one of the biggest questions actually were, is there such thing as a good and bad candidate for cosmetic or even facial plastic surgery, when is the time that reject a person's request? How do you know that it's something that you really need to do versus it's body dysmorphia, as you were mentioning? Yeah, so in cases where I decline to to help them, for the lack of better words, mm -hmm. is when, when, if first of all, if I honestly feel like I cannot help them in mm -hmm. the scope of my practice, mm -hmm. you know, within my skill level and within my training and my experience, mm -hmm. if I feel that I am not comfortable or mm -hmm. confident, mm -hmm. then I would rather give them the honesty so that they mm -hmm. can seek a better surgeon. So. Mm -hmm. That would be one scenario. And then the other scenario would be if the patient has some unrealistic expectations, for example, bringing in a lot of pictures of like Instagram mm -hmm. photos of, you know, photoshopped, snatched jawlines, like look gorgeous. You know, those models look perfect. And, you know, a lot of it is, I'm sure, you know, surgery and lighting and makeup mm -hmm. and Photoshop. <laughs> so, exactly. So if that's like their inspiration, that's that's fine. That's understandable mm. and that's practicable. But if somebody's wanting like I want to look exactly like mm. this, then yeah. I'm not sure if I can deliver that mm. and I I don't think I can meet that expectation. So mm -hmm. in that case, I would decline. And then another potential red flag might be if a patient had a, this is like a revision surgery consultation mm -hmm. and the, the patient had a very bad experience in the past, mm -hmm. which I do truly, you know, feel for them and mm -hmm. have sympathy. Mm -hmm. I sympathize with their unfavorable experience with the previous surgeon. But if they are flat out labeling the surgeon to be 
you know, oh, that surgeon botched me or mm. like, you know, rather than talking about the experience, if they're labeling the surgeon, then mm. that gives me a little bit of hesitation because mm. I don't know the story, of course, mm. and I truly feel for the patient's uh, disappointment. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, by labeling somebody so quick and yeah. sort of extreme like that makes me wonder, okay, what if I don't deliver the perfect mm -hmm. job, then, yeah. you know, am I going to disappoint them this much too? Yeah, those are things that I guess I look out for. Yeah. yeah. Speaking of that, like, let's say someone comes in and wanting to do rhinoplasty, do we go on for it right away? Or do you also seek like other alternatives first like i know how they fillers now to improve nasal nasal contour when is cosmetic surgery always the first option uh versus like trying non-surgical yeah um there are different indications mm -hmm. yeah uh, fillers are great i love fillers and botox or neurotoxins i offer them in my practice as well I try to factor in a variety of things. So the indication, first of all, are different. So for example, for a nose, what case can a nose be improved by just fillers mm -hmm. versus an actual surgery is that if it's a hump, filler can be a great option. By filling the space, the depression above the hump and below the hump, mm -hmm. you can create a smoother profile and you know camouflage that hump. Mm -hmm. And similarly, some fillers can be added at the tip of the nose to define the tip and mm -hmm. lift the tip. But, you know, filler won't completely address some of the other concerns, such as a crooked nose. You know, I don't think filler will really help that much. Wide alar base, if somebody has a wide nose and, and their specific goal is to narrow the base, then filler is just not in the... Yeah. in one of the options yeah. of what they can do. So yeah, there are different indications. Mm -hmm. And also I take into consideration of whether they want really want a permanent change mm -hmm. or they're just exploring the idea of I want to look better, but I, I don't know if I'm ready for a permanent change versus trying something. So in those patients, then I may offer filler or Botox mm -hmm. to introduce them, so to speak. And as the surgeon, I can't imagine the pressure, I guess, of during the consultation of people, like you said, with either realistic or unrealistic expectations. How do you prepare these patients to talk about, oh, this is your ideal, this might be the actual thing, or the risks involved with surgeries? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I talk about risks, benefits, alternatives, and limitations in every single consultation. I think those are very important and real topics that should be discussed, no matter how small a procedure might be. And the way I approach in explaining to patients is just being very frank about what I can deliver and what the limitations are and what the risks are. I mean, risks may sound scary, but, and I also follow up by saying, you know, some of the common risks might be these, and some of the extremely rare risks are these. You know, I, I don't think it's likely that you will experience that, but, you know, the risk is not zero. So just, you know, I don't want you to have any surprises. So I want you to know about them. So that's how I lay things out for them. 
And yeah, and I think some patients might feel overwhelmed, but some patients really appreciate all that information so they can make an informed decision about what they're about to do. Yeah, for sure. We touched upon earlier how fulfilling these procedures can be, not only for the patients, but also for you. A few people were asking if there is one specific procedure or a patient that comes to your mind that has impacted you so much, whether it's the results or their story or whatnot. Obviously, no names involved or whatever, but can you think of that one procedure or that one patient? Probably a lot. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think there were a lot of patients who have impacted me. Yeah. And and I think as much as I try not to, you know, as doctors, we, we are always taught to never be emotionally invested in patients, yeah. which part of it is true, because I think if you're too invested, then you can't perform the job well. Like you have to sort of separate that to be able to professionally deliver your job. But at the end of the day, I always think about all my patients. I yeah. think about, oh, like how I wonder how they're doing or you know last time I saw this patient she was you know really concerned about such and such and I really wonder how that's going so I really can't think of any like one particular patients that impacted me because I think there were there are a lot yeah but and yeah sorry I don't have no good and how does yeah. the follow-up um, work doc I know like for like dermatologists, like most of their patients are lifetime, right? They just keep coming back, follow-ups. Is that also how it is for cosmetic surgery? Is there a set time when the follow-up ends or how does that work? So routine follow-up, I think, is about a year for me. And that doesn't mean that it stops at a year, really. But if things are stable after a year, likely they're going to you know, remain happy and stable. Of course, my line of communication is open with all my patients all the time. So if there's any concerns or questions that develop after that, then I'm open and they're free to reach me. So the patients, it's not like like they're dismissed or anything it's mm-hmm. you know they're always within my patient care but mm-hmm. i i'd say routine follow-ups are about a year a year. Uh, year and a half yeah got it and i'm curious as to how covid changed your practice or how it changed your work my friend told me earlier oh can you ask if the rates of rhinoplasties went up during the pandemic is you know everyone's in the mask they can stay at home people can work at home that what happened is that for real so <laughs> that it's hard for me to say because yeah. I, I mean yes i think so but i don't know for sure because i have not been in practice for 10 years before this to really yeah, like true, have yeah. A, yeah. a good database of statistics mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but yeah before the pandemic versus now mm-hmm. i'd say now i'm like a lot busier yeah and i think part of it is the mask patients mm-hmm. wanting to mm-hmm. take advantage of this mm-hmm. time to yeah. recover from home or recover under the mask mm-hmm. and also the zoom and the yeah. facetiming yeah. <laughs> i know yeah I, I can just imagine and again doc our talk about all this whole stigma thing is so eye-opening and it's so encouraging that there are doctors like you that there are surgeons like you who really do care about their patients there were some assumptions in my messages of plastic of plastic surgery or cosmetic surgery and you know assumptions or misconceptions like oh the whole field of plastic and cosmetic surgery just preys upon people's insecurities or 
it's really all about the glitz and glamour. But thank you for showing us that there's so much more to the field than just that, right? There's really the whole psychosocial aspect. So thank you for being that vessel of word for us. And you really solidified yeah. why I do this. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. My pleasure. And I, you know, I think that in extreme cases, there are good and bad in every yeah. field. Yeah. Uh, and I think some of the bad few mm. press in the past may mm. have given that impression to some yeah. people. But really, you know, in the end, we're all healthcare professionals. We make an oath to do no harm and help patients. Mm -hmm. So whether it's helping them physically to restore their function or restore their form or to improve what they have if mm -hmm. they want, it's all about helping the patients achieve the goals that they're looking for. So yeah, I hope that clarifies yeah. some misconceptions. For sure, for sure. Yeah. And we also got specific questions, if that's okay with you. Yeah, um, yeah. Can people ask about facial asymmetry? It seems to be a running theme in the messages. And their question yeah. is, how do you go fixing that? If like, is it a jaw deviation? Is it muscle? What is facial asymmetry? And how would you go about fixing that though? Yeah, that's a really good question. It could be everything. It could be bone. It can be muscle. It can be fat. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It can be skin. Mm -hmm. So all the layers that mm -hmm. are involved in the face, it could have some level of asymmetry. So what really determines when I should intervene to fix it? First of all, if the patient notices the asymmetry and seeks my advice for it, and then of course, during consultation, we talk about it. Mm -hmm. If it's a very noticeable discrepancy, then I tell them it's worthwhile to look into it further by either getting a CT scan of mm -hmm. their face, CT facial bones to mm -hmm. look at their skeleton. Mm -hmm. And then sometimes if it feels like soft tissue difference, then either a CT with contrast or an MRI can be done. Mm -hmm. There are uh, options to correct that. If it's a very, very minor asymmetry, and by that I mean like a couple millimeters of one cheek being like flatter or whatnot, and I tell patients realistically, it may be difficult to completely correct it. Mm -hmm. No matter what the cause mm -hmm. is, whether it's bone or Mm -hmm. soft tissue if it's such a small difference mm -hmm. by trying to intervene and correct it that may invite room for more asymmetry mm -hmm. elsewhere so i tell them practicably what is possible and what is not realistic but yeah i think ct facial bones is always a good place mm -hmm. to start if i suspect any skeletal asymmetry and that can be congenital or that can be like trauma they had mm -hmm. in the past yeah. as a child a baby or child if they have an impact in their TMJ or mm -hmm. like their chin or something mm -hmm. and then they have like a damaged cartilage and their growth plate is damaged so one side may not develop as much as the mm -hmm. other side which can then later develop into a larger asymmetry as their skeleton grows larger got it so that's for those who ask for asymmetry 
And then a very big topic, <laughs> liposuction. <laughs> How does it really work? Is it permanent? How much fat can be removed? And when do you do this as opposed to like, you know how they have those things in the spas and clinics, the non-surgical sculpting yeah. devices? Yeah, so or um, cool and stuff like yeah. that. I'd say in my hands, liposuction works the best. <laughs> and this may just be my opinion. But the reason I say that is because I have control over where I put the cannula, how I direct the cannula and where to suck out the fat. Yeah, liposuction, I only perform neck and up. That's my scope of practice. So liposuction in the under the chin area called submentum. And then around the jawline is where I perform liposuction. And how that's done is I use a numbing fluid called tumescent fluid that localizes and numbs this area where I'm going to work. So and that also sort of frees up the fat cells for the fat cells to safely be liposuction. Uh, also, it constricts the blood vessels around this area so that, you know, we minimize the blood loss during the procedure. Mm -hmm. So it's a safe procedure. In this area, there's not a ton of volume that can be taken out unless the patient is really heavy to begin with. Typically, anywhere from, you know, as little as like three to five cc's to like 20 to 30 cc's. So after the tumescent fluid is placed, we let the area get numb and the blood vessels to constrict. Then I use a blunt cannula to go in and out and suck out the fat. And the fat cells that are sucked out, those are permanently gone. However, <laughs> <laughs> However, I cannot and I do not remove all the fat cells in the neck. You have to have a healthy layer of fat mm -hmm. remaining between the skin and the muscle of the neck. Safety-wise, you have to. So there's still some fat cells that are left in there, but you know, much less in number. If a person gains weight, let's say, after the liposuction, what could happen is that the remaining fat cells may grow in size before they grow in numbers. Still, even if they gain weight, I think it's still going to be less than pre-surgery amount of fat. Amazing. And I'm just imagining in my mind the greatness in your anatomy skills right now of, of trying to maneuver all of this and insert the cannula and this and that. It's amazing. Dog, your brain is out of this world. <laughs> <laughs> and... And the last set of questions that people ask um, specifically were about implants. And I know you do like chin implants, right? Can you tell us how that works, how those are inserted? What is the rate that the body will reject it, given that it is a foreign object, right? And is it for everybody? Yeah, that's a good question. So implants that are applicable to the face area would be chin, as you mentioned, cheeks, Mm -hmm. forehead eye implant it's a rare thing but when i was in korea doing some training for mm -hmm. this they inserted a lot of forehead implants for patients who are wanting like a rounder mm -hmm. forehead to appear more youthful oh. and feminine so that is a thing mm -hmm. and then <laughs> implants for the nose so those are and, and jawline implants mm -hmm. so those are some of the common implants for the face mm -hmm. and the way that they are inserted is right above the bone so under the muscle but 
out above the bone, it gets placed there. And the way that it is secured is by screws. I like to use screws, but sometimes it can be fixated by just permanent sutures or, mm -hmm. or some other sutures. I think different surgeons have different techniques mm -hmm. and I have done it I, both ways. But yeah, they get fixated right up against the bone so they don't move. Any foreign body, you know, implant in our body, your body will form a capsule, whether it's a thin capsule or, or thick and hard capsule, it will form a capsule. Capsular formation is a natural healing process. Now, when that can be a problem is if the capsule gets really thick and hard and painful, such as in breast implants, you know, people get capsular contraction when the capsules get thick and hard and cause some kind of deformity or pain in their breast. In the face, the capsular contraction is very rare just because the implants are fixed against the bone. So they don't really move. Unlike the breast implants, they move around as the person moves. So rejection is really rare, I would say, unless there is some kind of a infection. Like if it were to be infected and have pus around it, obviously your body will not like that. You know, there's redness and pain and then pus might drain. So in that case, it has to be removed. But other than that, I wouldn't call it quote unquote rejection, so to speak. There are other risks though with the implants. It could cause some bone resorption, not all the time, but it can. So sort of long-term follow-up is important for that. And then implant migration is also so another risk. I have removed implants from patients who came to see me. Implants placed long, long time ago mm -hmm. elsewhere. The implant was like eroded into the mouth. Somehow the chin implant, which should be down here, sort of worked its way sideways and the edge of it was poking through the gum. So in that case, yeah, we removed it and then let it heal, put them on antibiotics and then potentially redo the surgery or do something else about it. Oh, that is scary. I'm actually curious of uh, nasal implants. When would that be then as opposed to like rhinoplasty? Yeah, nasal implants are a good option for patients who are wanting augmentation of their nose. So if they want their bridge of the nose to be higher, project out further, then implant can be an option. There are other techniques to build a bridge uh, by using natural cartilage, your own cartilage from either your own septum or your rib. But implant is just another option to increase that height if the patient is not necessarily wanting a secondary surgical site to harvest the rib cartilage or something yeah got it wow that is amazing i think that's why it's true when they say that medicine is both a science and an art right like the amount of yeah. creativity also and the meticulous thinking that must be done to do all of these procedures and all of that being said dog all those procedures and all of this works how do you decompress out of work i can imagine how stressful it could be also thinking that you are the one <laughs> taking care of these people's health and their status how do you decompress from that stress once you get home or maybe even at work yeah decompress um <laughs> do you uh, <laughs> 
<laughs> that's that's hard. That's hard. I I think it's hard for me because I am so like integrated into my patient care. You know, I don't like I don't know if I work in a hospital. You know, maybe you you're done with your shift and then you're done,、yeah. and then the on call doc will take care of you know get a sign out. But for me, I'm like on for my patients twenty four seven. So yeah. yeah, sometimes it's hard to decompress. Yeah. Yeah.、Uh, I think just spending time with my child、yeah. is a form of decompression. Yeah. yeah. And I wanted to ask about that. How is your schedule as a cosmetic surgeon? Hours in the hospital can be long, also plus the on-calls or whatnot. What is your daily schedule? Do you work like every weekday? Yes, I work pretty much Monday through Friday. I have been working some Saturdays as well、mm. because of the demands that I have right now. But typically, like eight thirty to five thirty or six are my hours. If it's a surgery day and if it's a long surgery,、mm. I go as late as eight or nine or ten、uh, until the surgery is done. But Yeah, typically things are done by no later than I'd say eight o'clock. Yeah. What would be the longest surgery that you'd ever have to perform? It was a like a combination surgeries.、Oh, okay. Yeah, like facelift, upper、mm-hmm. and lower eyelids,、mm-hmm. back grafting to the face, and lip lift. Yeah, like every everything. Everything. Yeah, I think that was all day. Yeah. Got it, Doc. Thank you so much for your time for sharing your wisdom and. Your experience, you. everything. I have learned so much, and I know so many people have learned so much as well. Yeah, I yeah. I just want to send my appreciation for everybody joining, and it's the first time I've done a live discussion, so I really didn't know like what to expect. But <laughs> I think Chris was a phenomenal host, and he just made the process so easy.、Uh, and yeah. yeah, and thanks so much for inviting me to have this valuable discussion with you. Yeah, I'm super honored. Honored. Honored, my dog. Take care, Chris. Have a good night. Bye. Thank you.